0: Hello everybody. It is the end of my work week. So that means it's time for you to join me on the homeward path. This is the show that I record in my vehicle on the way home from work at the end of the work week. And my name is Adam. I'm a husband, father of three, work a full-time job. And listen, magic's tough. It takes a lot of time and a lot of money. And if you're like me and don't have a lot of either one of those things because other responsibilities come first, then you should probably stay tuned because I'm here to try to show you how I am seeking improvement at Magic under difficult time and financial constraints. But before we get started, I need to remind you that I'm a part of the Constructive Criticism Network of Shows. If you haven't checked out the other content on the network, it is fantastic and you are doing yourself a disservice by not doing so. Uh, We bid a hopefully temporary farewell to the Arena Mythic cast, but Spencer returns, makes a glorious return to the flagship Constructed Criticism show. Uh, We've got Common Knowledge with Brad and Christian, and we've got... Sam Black, one of the icons one of the legends of Magic the Gathering with his insights unlimited so we've got something for everybody out of the group I'm probably the most casual and I'm kind of trying to lay into that, embrace that, lean into it a little bit more but check out the network and don't forget to check out our sponsors which I'll read off at the beginning of each segment How's it going, everybody? I hope you've had a good week off in between episodes. I can neither confirm nor deny whether or not I have, but we will trudge on ahead as we do here on the homeward path. Let's dive into our first segment every episode, which is Budget Spotlight. Budget Spotlight's where I'm highlighting an uncommon, a rare, and a mythic, and a commander slanted, commander focused card, if you will that I feel like do not get the, de- the due that they are deserving of. And this segment is powered by our sponsorship from MTGO Traders and Pure MTGO. Uh, Pure MTGO is the sponsor, MTGO Traders is the one who makes it possible. If you're looking for magic content on the web, I mean, obviously, first of all, all of the Constructive Criticism Network shows are there. But you can also just check out stuff for Commander and Legacy Cube and Pauper and like if there's a format you want content for, chances are it's on pure MTGO. Go check it out. And while you're you know perusing the web, if you're a Magic Online player like I am on occasion, rental services are hit and miss these days with the sheer volume of people using them. So why don't we just go back to getting our own cards and MTGO Traders has the best prices, the best service, and my longest running relationship of any of the vendors online. So they get my business before we even factor in the sponsorship. So with that out of the way, let's dive in and talk about our uncommon, which is one we've seen an awful lot of sort of a surge of an uptick in play in, usher of the Fall. Usher of the Fallen is a one mana, a single white mana, 2-1 Spirit Warrior. And says, Boast. And for those of you who don't know, Boast is an ability from, I believe it was Kaldheim, that whenever your creature attacks, or uh, you can play the ability while the creature... If this creature attacked this turn. So you can attack with it, and then you can play the Boast ability at any point from the moment you declare it as an attacker to the point that you reach the end of the turn. So what the boast ability is on Usher the Fallen is create a 1-1, I believe it's spirit token. It's either a 1-1 spirit token or a 1-1 human token, I can't remember what kind of token it is, but it's a 1-1 no abilities token. And you can get this card for the low, low price of $0.25 cents from CoolStuffing.com or .02 ticks on MTGO Traders. So why do we like this card? What's simpler than an engine unto itself? This thing, just one drop to one, first of all, that's already a feather in the cap if you will, ectoplasm in the form. Uh, but it goes deeper than that. It's also got the ability to, early on in the game, pressure your opponent without having to commit a lot of cards. It allows you to save the cards in your hand to do, you know, you worry about doing stuff after your opponent deals with this thing, right? Like, your opponent wants to deal with it, they have to deal with it, because it will just sit there and keep turning out spirits. It's only... You know, turn one, it comes down. Turn two, it starts making spirits. And it can make three spirits, four spirits by the fourth turn of the game. If you're on the play, that's a lot of velocity. Your opponent's got to deal with it. You can go really wide in any kind of a travel payoff. It makes this thing get harder. And not for nothing, but it's a spirit... And a warrior, and a non-human for Winota shenanigans. But mostly, it's a spirit for cards that care about spirits. Whether they be cards like Dragon Skull Captain, whether they be cards like I don't know, hmm. whether they be cards like Dragon Skull Captain, Supreme Phantom. I don't know. Whatever you for spirits it's also a one mana spirit for you know commander spirit craft shenanigans for what it's worth you know the whenever you cast a spirit or arcane spell mechanic from original Kamigawa block which I am a staunch supporter of even though it wasn't very good what can I say I'm an Atlanta Falcons Vanderbilt and Memphis Grizzlies fan I love things that are not usually very good but being able to play nice with the Spirit Tribal support and being able to play nice with the Warrior Tribal support that is in the current standard format kind of a big deal you know between uh, Core Blade Master the one that gives you equipped Warriors Double Strike and the uh, I can't remember the card's name the 3 drop 3-3 three, three, other Warriors you control get plus 1 plus 1 Hill the, the, the trained armadon that makes your other warriors better. That would be the one. It becomes a 3-2 for one mana. That's pretty good. So all the way around, I mean you can do a whole lot worse than that for a quarter or two pennies, depending on what form of what medium you are playing in. Moving on to our rare, this one takes a little bit more explanation. This one is much more of a speculation, not really like a pure speculation, not one of those cards I'm like, I'll oh, get it, it's going to go crazy in price, but it's a card I think is going to have some value in gameplay before long, thanks to some of the cards we've seen spoiled from Crimson Vow already. But the card in question is the Raven's Warning from Kaldheim, that's our rare for this week. It is a saga, one a blue and a white. Chapter 1 is make a 1 1 bird token with flying and gain 2 life. Chapter 2 is whenever a creature you control deals damage, whenever a creature or creatures you control with flying deal damage, deal combat damage to an opponent this turn, you can look at that player's hand and draw a card. And then chapter 3 is is put a card you own from outside the game on top of your library. And price tag on this right now is 50 cents in paper on CoolStuffInk.com and .01 tickets on MTGO Trader. So it's actually cheaper than the Uncommon. Now let's talk about why, why I'm interested in this card. First of all, as a three-mana, yes, it's stretched across three turns, and the opponent can interrupt any of the effects they don't like. Get that out of the way. It's an enchantment. I mean, you know, it can be disrupted. There's no, you know, you don't get all of this for sure, but it gives you a quote-unquote threat. Then, quote, draws two cards on its own in the sense that it will draw you a card for sure if your 1-1 bird token sticks around. If you have nothing else alongside of it. It will draw you a card, give you information, and then allow you to access a silver bullet out of your sideboard. It also has synergy in the sense that if you play it with a mixture of creatures that have first strike or cards that provide first strike and cards without first strike, fun fact, your first strike creatures deal damage first, and then the rest of your creatures hit. Now, it's worth noting, the way the the ability is worded, you will not draw a card for each creature unless you attack with two of them, one of them has first strike and one of them doesn't. Because of how the ability is worded, because it only triggers when a creature or creatures you control with flying deal combat damage in one fell swoop. Damage is obviously dealt at all at once in each damage step. First strike damage step, combat damage step. But when we're talking about playing creatures of first strike, that means you get an additional trigger if your flying first strike creature hits first. Because it hits alone, you draw a card. Then the rest of your creatures hit, and you draw an additional card. Not for nothing. Milk in the advantage this thing gives you is really important. But it has to do with the fact that we're going to be really interested, I think, in blue-white as a color combination. And being interested in blue-white as a color combination because of some new cards from crimson bow along with the synergy they have with some cards we're already playing with in standard right now and for that reason i'm in on raven's warning again it's a it's a 50 cent investment in paper or a penny on magic online now if you're short on rare wild cards on arena don't like this is way down your list of things to craft (laughs) if you're looking to play a blue white sort of Skies, Tempo-y, whatever pile on Arena, You want to, there are so many other cards you're going to want to craft before you do this. So full disclosure, I'm much more in on this in mediums where the investment is not difficult to recoup. And recouping rare wild cards is a problem. So with that in mind, let's move on to our mythic, and we've done this one on the show before, but I wanted to talk about it again. Our mythic is Seagate Stormcaller. Seagate Stormcaller is 1 in a blue, 2-1, human wizard, kicker of 4 in a blue. When this creature enters the battlefield, copy your next instant or sorcery you cast this turn with mana value 2 or less. If this card was kicked, copy that spell 3 times, or twice instead. I can't remember if it's twice or 3 times. Regardless, you get you go from getting two copies to getting three copies. That's really good. Price tag is a dollar in paper and thirty-seven cents on MTGO Traders. It's a dollar for a mythic. Uh, it was overhyped pretty massively in its release. Not gonna lie. Nearly every scenario where this card is good just having a 4-drop creature with an ETB would be, an ETB of the effect you're trying to copy would be stronger. But, I mean, we still live in a standard format where we have access to cards like Play With Fire, Blood Chief's Thirst, Duress, Devour Intellect, uh, Fateful Absence, Blizzard Brawl. The list goes on of cards that this synergizes really well with At the total mana value of 3 or 4. But that notwithstanding. The bigger the format gets. The more options we have at our disposal. The better this card gets. Because you get more playable 1 mana cards to play alongside this thing. I mean. Look at where we are now compared to where we were. In the standard 22 format. We've got quite a bit more access to removal, card draw, cantrips. And that's the thing people don't like to, or don't really talk about enough with this card. Is the fact that in conjunction with a cantrip, it is very good. The downside to this card is that it is a very, 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 very bad top deck. Because it doesn't do anything by itself. That being said, it does still facilitate the weirdest combo finish Ever. Uh, For those of you who don't know, it's the Neoform combo in Historic and Modern. It's not currently legal in Pioneer because we do not have a 3-mana when this creature enters the battlefield copy target spell ability on a Flash creature, or any creature for that matter. But uh, you cast this, cast Neoform, sacrificing this, Neoform gets copied at X equals two. And then Neoform allows you to go get a creature with X plus one mana value and put it onto the battlefield. You go get Dualcaster Mage. Dualcaster Mage ability hits the stack, copies the Neoform again. You go get another Dualcaster Mage, copy it again. Go get another Dualcaster Mage, copy it again. Go get the fourth Dualcaster Mage, copy it again. Go get Glassbowl Mimic. Who enters the battlefield as Dualcaster Mage, copy it again. etc. You just keep going. Just get all the all the creatures on the battlefield. And finally, when you resolve the original Neoform, you go get a three-drop creature that gives all your creatures haste. Either forever or just for the turn. It doesn't really much matter. So, you know, if you're if you're looking for a weird combo enabler that also doubles as something that may have some utility in standard and pioneer down the line it's worth the dollar on Seagate Stormcaller so with that out of the way let's dive into our last card our commander of the week if you will in Renar the Ever Watchful. now this is one of them from the Caldheim uh, commander decks I, for the life of me I cannot remember how big this card I think it's like a 6 mana 3, 4 I, I, or no, it's a four mana, four mana blue-white, and I cannot remember how big the creature is, but frankly, I don't care, because the two abilities are the part that matter. The first is the first card you foretell on your turn costs zero to foretell. That's kind of a big deal. Between cards like Saw It Coming, Starnheim Unleashed, uh, behold the multiverse all Ren's epiphany getting those into fortel early rather than late big deal it also says the first time you exile a card from your hand or a card from the battlefield or it's when you exile a ca- one or more cards from your hand and or permanents from the battlefield during your turn create a 1/1 white spirit token with flying So, price tag is a dollar in paper and a dollar thirty-four on Magic Online. One of the few that we've gotten so far that the Magic Online price is higher. Surprise, to be sure. Not really a welcome one, but I mean, it's still dollar thirty-four. Not exactly breaking the bank. Uh, it's a Commander for Blue White that gets you to a few different themes because you've got synergy with exile removal, blink themes and spirits and the foretell theme so there's a lot going on there's a lot available, it looks like one that would be really complex to build because you get pulled in a lot of different directions but the thing that's neat about it is you don't need a lot of payoffs in any given direction in order to make this card powerful Like exile removal is just something you want in white anyway, Path to exile make a token So it's plowshares. Make a token. Final judgment, wipe the board. Make a token. (laughs) Momentary blink my creature. Make a token. Flash it back. Make another token. And if you've got abilities that are triggering when creatures enter the battlefield. Or you've got abilities that want you to have flying creatures. Or you've got abilities like... I don't know. Supreme Phantom, Drug Skull Captain, Rattle Chains. You don't need many Spirit payoffs to make this card really, really good. So, I mean, it's worth the dollar, right? Now, moving on, that's going to wrap up our budget spotlight. Let's move on to our Brew of the Week segment. Brew of the Week is where I'm spotlighting a deck that I have come across either that's been sent to me by a patron or that I have just found either organically by playing arena and or any paper event that I might go to at some point in the future or, you know, research come across through web searching that I think is way better than the amount of credit that it's given. This week's episode is on Esper Lear in Standard from the most recent Standard Challenge on MTGO, piloted by Fingers1991. And this is a good time to bring up that this segment is actually brought to you by the affiliate program from Grey Viking Games. If you're an arena player like I am, and you find yourself occasionally needing a little bit of a handful of extra cards... Or you're just really tired of looking at that old pet. Or you want some new sleeves. Maybe a new avatar. I don't know what you're about. Follow the link down below in the uh, description. If you're watching on YouTube, listening on Constructive Criticism. Or if you are not in either of those mediums. Jump over to our Facebook group, The Homework Pathfinders. And it's going to be in the pinned section there that affiliate gets you into their website and lets them know i sent you so it helps the show while it helps you get cards on arena with that out of the way let's go into how this deck works the core concept is you leverage cheap spot removal disruption and cantrips and card draw to keep the board state really 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 simple you know when you play enough spot removal you know, you play spot removal in large enough numbers, it can feel like you're playing a bunch of sweepers even when you're not. Just because a, a, good, a, a good amount of the time you're drawing a removal spell and usually the one you need, or one of them you need. With that in mind, it's one of those... It, it feels very much like a like a, a Jund, um, Rakdos Pyromancer, or a Mardu Pyromancer, or an old-school Jund... Where you are just kind of trying to leverage a lot of efficient one-for-one trades. And then you've got a card advantage engine that's going to pay you back on the other end of it down the line. So, you can go wide with Sedgemore Witch. Or you can close things out with the Creature Lands in your mana base. As far as how you can punch through and win the game. And Lear's no slouch in combat herself. I mean we're talking about we're talking about playing Blood Chief's Thirst, Duress. You know, we've got spot removal, disruption, cantrips, and card draw. We've got duress. We've got uh, Blood Chief's Thirst. The White Splash in the main deck is for Vanishing Verse. Exile target monocolored permanent. Big deal. Huge deal. Name me a multicolored permanent people are scared of right now. Nobody, you can't do it. Not in standard. Can't do it. Nobody cares about multicolor permanence. Coma? I hadn't seen a coma since Luca rotated. I have not seen a coma hit the battlefield since Luca Coppercoat Outcast rotated, so I'm not worried about Coma. So from a customization standpoint, you can tinker with the disruption suite or swap out a few of the cheaper spells in order to play some sweepers. It's really just the case of trying to get the the removal and disruption suite suited to what you're intending to play against. If you're playing against a lot of aggro, you want to try to find ways to get two for ones at one, two, and three mana and put the game on ice with a four or five mana spell. At... When you're playing against mid-range decks where their cards are more powerful, you're looking to trade at mana advantages as often as possible and look to outpace them by being able to cast more spells than them, i.e. they cast a 4-drop, you cast, on, you know, you're on the play, they've cast a 4-drop on their turn 4 on the draw, and you can cast sedgemore Witch plus a removal spell, get a token, you're ahead in the, the spell resolution department. They spend a full 5 mana on Goldspan Dragon, you can spend two mana on Vanishing Verse and be able to pay for, you know, a jewelry disruption or what have you. Emrith, you've got a clean out at six total mana if it's untapped. If it attacks, you got it for two. Exile, get out of here. Two mana. Vanishing Verse is great. Let's talk about, like, that is worth splashing a whole third color just to play that card. That card is everything my blue-black control deck has been missing. And you can bet your backside I'm going to be trying to work on this shell. I think it's really good. But it's it's definitely one of those decks that you want to bring the right 75, right? You've got access to tempo plays in uh, Fading Hope and Divide by Zero, you've got access to a lot of cheap, efficient removal between Faithful Absence, uh, Vanishing Verse, Blood Chief's Thirst, Infernal uh, Infernal Grasp, uh, Power Word Kill, Flunk, you've got access to Sweepers in the form of Crippling Fear, uh, Shadow's Verdict, Blood on the Snow, I would honestly rather play Blood on the Snow than uh, Shadow's Verdict in this shell. If only because Sedgemore Witch only costs 3 mana so even though you're 3 colors, you can get away with playing Blood on the Snow. Because you really only need 3 basics on the field. But, I guess the exile is probably a big deal now that I think about it. Regardless. Strengths and Weaknesses, thanks to the white splash, you can interact with nearly any permanent and do so at a mana advantage while gaining a form of inevitability from Lear, uh, providing flashback to all of your spells in your graveyard and making it to where your spells can't be counted. Big deal. I don't care how many disdainful strokes you have. This Behold the Multiverse is resolving in response to your Allred's Epiphany know whatever the case may be i can get this thing through is the point we're trying to make here and leer also allows you a little bit of flexibility in your lesson plan because you don't have to play as many of them you don't have to play redundant copies of anything because leer will give you another one a really good example is teaching of the archaics where it's a card that you play when you're behind you go get it when you're behind Either because you foretold some cards or because you've traded aggressively early in the game, and then you can load that up with uh, divide by zero. Which is just the icing on the cake, right? You put the card back in their hand and then you get to draw an extra card if you put the you get enough cards back in their hand. It's so good. But Lear allows you to access it again which is a big deal. It also gives you access to uh, mascot exhibition again once you pull ahead. So that's another actual win condition in the deck as opposed to being a thing you go get to kind of maybe try to stabilize the board. So, you know, in that vein, it's really, really good. The downside is you can absolutely get overwhelmed by decks that will go wide because in white and black, respectively right now, we do not have a lot of ways to sweep the board before turn four. And even at turn four or after turn four, we don't have a lot of ways to sweep the board. So from that standpoint, it can be a little bit difficult because... You know, Mono White gets fast draws. Mono Green gets fast draws. And we can't rely on a single copy of Shadow's Verdict to catch us all the way up. we got to do it with a bunch of spot removal. That allows our opponent to resolve more spells underneath us. So it's important to keep in mind what we're playing against and tune accordingly. And obviously keep an eye out on what new cards to get That fit what we're trying to do, but make that matchup a little bit more tenable. From an outlook standpoint, I think this deck is in line with a lot of other decks in a similar playstyle. Esper hero, the various forms of young Pyromancer decks before them. It's one of those decks that just, you know, there's always a place for a deck like this, right? The one for one, you until I can get paid off for it it's such a simple straightforward concise this is what I'm about archetype and I'm here for it I hope you are too as we get more good cheap interaction this deck's gonna get better because the more cheap interaction you get the better giving all of it flashback the better get you know think of Lear as a souped up you, know, you want to talk about power creep and magic let's talk about the power creep between draw new Lich lord and Lear draw new demolished your board if it ever got touched by a burn spell Lear makes my spells uncounterable really we thought this was a good idea okay So I mean, in that vein, with that, with that mindset, I, I'm, I'm going to be hard-pressed to put this thing down. I was, a, I was a huge proponent of draw new teachings back in its heyday, and while you can't give Lear flash, you can just wait long enough that it doesn't matter. out of the way, let's move on to our main topic this week, where I'm talking about trying our best not to make things too complex. Because Magic is already a very complex game. As Magic players, our goal in any given game should be simple. But before we talk about how we attain that goal in gameplay, let's remind you that this segment is brought to you by the support of our patrons some of you have been here since day one some of you have joined up later but I appreciate every single one of you that jumped over to patreon.com slash homeworkpath became a patron, took advantage of all your rewards, support the show in the most direct fashion possible our goal in magic is to make the game as simple as possible and as difficult as possible for the opponent you can do both of these things at the same time Think about it from the standpoint of... For those of you who are interested in sports, the really good analogy is a football team with a relatively small playbook, like, they they seem to run the same plays all the time. You know, Peyton Manning's Colts are a good example. They had, like, 12 plays. They ran 12 plays for 12 years. But nobody could stop it because they were so good at what they did. It was simple... But just because you knew it was coming doesn't mean you can beat it. That was their mentality. That was the that was the, the mindset they went into every game with is, yeah, they know it's coming, but they can't stop it. Now sometimes they could. Sometimes they would remain disciplined. Sometimes an opposing team came in with the right game plan to shut them down. But they were just different enough. They were simple, they were easy to execute. They didn't get cute very often. They didn't beat themselves. And that's a philosophy I like to try to emulate in my Magic play. Don't get too cute. Try not to beat yourself. To make the the analogy a little bit more appropriate, there are also teams that have a bad habit of getting way too complex. Teams where the playbook kind of beats you over the head, there's way too much going on, and you just can't process everything you're supposed to try to keep track of. The same is true in a lot of magic decks and archetypes and what have you. What do I mean when I talk about trying to minimize complexity as a general rule? There were a few years ago, and I say a few, it's been like 14 (laughs) I've been playing this game a while, everybody Long time But a a few years ago There was a magic player by the name of Craig Jones Who, uh, you know, proud owner of the Most expensive Lightning Helix on the planet Because it's a Lightning Helix that Earned him $16,000 And during his sort of brief stint As a, a, a regular on the Pro Tour He did a fantastic article highlighting the dangers of what he liked to call Fancy Deck Syndrome. In it, he described the process he used for arriving at his Pro Tour Yokohama Deck List, in which he was trying to cover every single base that he could possibly cover. He was trying to have an answer for everything. You know, we were, we were playing subpar card choices in order to gain flexibility. We weren't maximizing mana efficiency. We weren't, you know, no fundamental regard whatsoever. We were just trying to have an out to everything. The end result was a mess of cards that didn't do anything particularly well and, frankly, didn't do much of anything at all. And that is not where you want to be going into a Pro Tour. Fun fact. And then he used this experience to remember in a in a future event. Just play the best deck you can. Just play the best deck. The the exact wording he used at the end of the at the end of the day, the end of the article was just play the best deck, damn it. Just play the best deck. And with that that mentality in mind going into, you know, the summer series for him. Craig just played Mono-Red. It was, you know, it was the the Mono-Red deck that splashed green for exactly Tarmogoyf. Because that was the only deck that played Tarmogoyf at that point in the at that point in the card's life cycle was Mono-Red Aggro, Yeah stew on that for a little while. It's a real thing that happened. People didn't want to play boys I'm not lying to you. I promise. <laughs> so, how does that apply to now? Right? That was 14 years ago. How is it possible that this is still a, a, a mentality that's correct? Well, I'm glad I'm pretending you asked that. Step one the, the first way I can think of to really kind of let this drive this point home if you will you see what I did there. That's funny because of where I record this episode. Uh, whatever your duck does, whatever your deck does well, lean into it. If you're on either end of the proactive to reactive spectrum if you will, your game one configuration really needs to demonstrate that. If your goal is to string the game out as long as possible and make sure that your opponents don't get one over on you, show them that. Make sure they don't in your card choices, in the way you, if you live in the mid-range space, make your cards difficult to trade with at a mana advantage or generate an immediate source of value. This. I'm not telling you anything you don't already know. But it's important to reiterate that, especially as we start getting a little bit cutesy and, you know, creative, if you will, in deck building and card choices. It's really important to keep in mind not to get too cute. But it also goes beyond deck building, which is really important to note. It's important to play your matchups correctly. Understanding your role, your outs, and your sideboard plan. You know, not just yours, but theirs too. People are going to come in with a plan for you just like you come in with one for them. So what level do you want your response to their plan to be at? Really important to remember. That isn't to say you can't blend archetypes. You can't bleed archetypes into one another. You know, format constraints and card pool may force you into a different role, but your overall approach remains the same. A really good example of this is back in the day. Uh, well, we'll get to some more examples in a minute. Adding a small dash of power at the top of your curve in a more proactive deck is also a good way to sort of dominate the mirror if the mirror is one of the most popular matchups you expect to face, it—you know—you've got the option as a as a proactive deck to add a couple of power-packed cards, either in the main deck or the sideboard, in order to punch through an opponent who is fighting really hard to keep your power ceiling low, or, or you can take it a step further and go the other way. When you're playing the reactive deck, have an answer for your opponent who wants to go the other way on you. You Your opponent wants to string the game out. They want to win the long game. So you can just play a cheap threat. Them knowing that your normal game plan is to stay long game, you can add an extra cheap threat and shorten the game. You know, you can look to shorten the game and put your opponent on notice in a different way. Uh, These are all valid ways to tackle evolving formats, if you will. A A format that is kind of becoming stale, becoming different, becoming homogenized, whatever you want to call it, because at the end of the day, the goal is to win games and matches of magic, and we can only do that when we know what we're doing. We can only do that when we, we know what we're doing to the point that we don't have to think about it very much, and our opponent doesn't. With that in mind, the key is to not get bogged down so far in spice that you can't execute whatever your plan A is. Let's look at some examples. Callblade at its at its peak, when it first dropped onto the scene, when it was at its at its most sort of revolutionary. At its core, Callblade was a blue-white tap-out deck that played six new cards because the stock version of blue-white tap-out already played Jace the Mind Sculptor, Gideon, your uh, uh, board sweepers, cantrips, card draw, a little bit of counter magic, and Squadron Hawk. All they did was add Stoneforge Mystic and two swords, or Sword of Feast and Famine and Sylvan Life staff. That's it. That's all they did. They took blue-white tap out and put a cheap thread in it to let it dominate the mirror. And the deck ended up taking over everything. Teamer Energy. At it, you know, discounting the the two really fundamentally broken ones in that format. In the form of uh, in the form of Marvel, and Four-Color Sahili. Discounting those variants, there was also the consideration of what happened to the Teamer Energy mid-range deck. Because it sort of broke out over the summer as the stock version, right? You just played all the best energy cards in one shell. Roller Virtuoso was really good. Uh, Bristling Hydra was really good, and Glorybringer was your top end. But then Teamer Black became a theme, Became became a thing that people wanted to do. They'd play one Swamp, and then, you know, Aether Hub, Servant of the Conduit, would allow you to stretch to add the Black Splash for uh, Scarab God. But teamer Black was different than Saltai Red, which was playing Scarab God and Glint Sleeve Siphoner. But trimmed the red down to remove Glory Bringer and only play World of Virtuous and Harness Lightning to make the mana demands easier. That deck was different fundamentally, but was still Teamer Energy at the end of the day. And then you have you know to, to use a version that's to use an example that's not just what you do. You know, not the best deck in its given format. Cycling, in last in the last two years, standard. Uh, when it came out in Ikoria, it was a linear agro deck. There's there's not really any beating around the bush there. It was a linear agro deck. You played all of the cycling card, the be, the best cards for cycling, the best payoffs for cycling, and you just tried to smash your opponent's face in with flourishing fox and finish with zenith flare you were not interested in a long game. You didn't care about a grind plan because your grind plan was to just top deck Zenith Flare and blast your opponent for a billion. But then the format changed. That became less viable. More spot removal, better spot removal. And even though they didn't add any new cards to the deck in the process of doing it, they added the draw two engine from Throne of Eldraine into the deck in the form of Improbable alliance and Craig Power Mancer. So the deck evolved from a linear one-trick pony to a deck that had a capable grind game. But it was still more than happy to just Flourishing Fox, Valiant Rescuer, cycle a bunch of cards, run over you. It'll blast you down to six, top deck Xenon, Flare, kill you. More than happy. Right. The key is to not go too crazy with the the side splashes or the the bleeding and dilute it to the point that your deck doesn't do what it's supposed to do. And I am here to I'm telling you this not as someone who is perfect because none of us are. But as someone who will tell you forthright forthcoming I'm super guilty of this. I am really bad about this. Just, you know, playing pet cards, splashing Delver into a blue-black control deck because I think I'm cute. And at the end of the day, it doesn't make my deck any better. It's just a card I like, and I need to quit doing this. My win rate will go up. Confidence goes up. But I just stick to the basics. Don't make it more complicated than it needs to be. Keep the game simple. It's why I love control decks. It's not because they're big brain. It's not because they're intrinsically harder to play. It's because they allow me to keep the game simple. Does my opponent have a thing that I can't kill? If they don't, I'm winning. <laughs> so that's all I've got for this week, everybody. I really am looking forward to what we're doing starting with the next episode. Uh, I've been, full disclosure, I've been kind of stewing on this one for a little while. And that is uh, the play versus draw dynamic in Magic. Because it's a dynamic that gets a lot of attention in other games as like a major focal point of deck building and play sequencing and all of it. But for the most part, it's only talked about from the standpoint of sideboarding and Magic. So, I intend to do, I think there's a lot of ground to cover in regards to the play-draw dynamic. But I want to start simple. Next week is going to be the first in the series. And it's going to talk about the core concepts that you need to be leveraging depending on whether you're on the play or on the draw. And with that out of the way, that's all I've got. So again, I hope you've enjoyed this episode. We will catch you next time. Remember, if you've got questions, comments, concerns, send them to me on Twitter at HomewardPathMTG. On Facebook, my name is, or the Facebook group is the Homeward Pathfinders. Uh, If you're a patron of the show, you get access to the Patron Pathfinders Discord where we're discussing episode topics and I'm sharing deck lists and stuff like that. And if you want to get to know the guy behind the microphone and find out where all the MTG dad jokes went, uh, follow me on TikTok. I'm at Homeward Path Gaming. And we, we occasionally will get a little, a little political, but still mostly focused on lighthearted fun. So that's all I've got for this week. So again, remember everybody's going through stuff right now. It's been, I, I, I am guilty of it more than probably anybody else. Not remembering that other people are struggling as much as I am, if not more. So when dealing with other people, please try to lead with kindness. It's really easy to be mean to people, but it's so much better for everybody when we're kind. So, you know, Always try to be nice, but please never fail to be kind. So laugh hard, keep things simple, be kind, and we'll catch you next week. Be safe, everybody.